Hey, everybody. Hola. Hola. Okay, so we do this totally geeky thing. Everybody has to turn on their camera so I can say hi. A brief look at all the humanoids out there. Oh, there are humans out there after all. Hi, humanoids. Humanoids. Really, we we all we're all just hanging out in this virtual cyber space. It's really kind of cool. Excellent. Great. Thanks, everybody. So here we are. Our uh, our weekly gathering, which we started almost a year ago. Amazing. We did it. If you're new to this, we, we launched this just as a way to hang out when COVID started coming down. It's been a year. I remember it very well because I was um, literally, no exaggeration, I'm a big skier. And I was heading up to Vail. I was literally halfway up to Vail. Car loaded up with all the goods for a week. Literally halfway up where, when I got the ping closed. I was like, talk about, you know, expectation is premeditated disappointment. I was so looking forward to the whole week and then total shutdown. So I pulled a U-turn, came back, and then the rest is history, so to speak. So uh, we started this a year ago as a way to hang out. I like these sessions because I don't have to prepare anything. <laughs> this is a place where we get to just hang out. I, I usually have a few spontaneous comments about whatever comes to mind. Um, so I'll share a couple things. And then I always do a little bit of a upcoming attractions thing. So let me do that first. Um, we started our meditation group thing about a month ago. Um, and so we've done three sessions on introduction to mindfulness shamatha. Um, we're going to come back to that. But this week I, I introduced Tonglen, um, this really powerful practice, especially for this time and age. And so this coming Monday, we're going to do more on Tonglen. I'm going to read some instructions from Pema Children, who, I mean, she's so good at this. Um, We've got movie night for those of you who are nightclub members, movie night on Saturday. I think it's Avatar today, right? Yeah. And speaking of avatars, I read, I haven't read this book yet, but uh, um, Frank, I think it's Vilcek, this Nobel laureate physicist, wrote a book, something like the 10, something 10 factors of reality or something like that. I just read a review, review of it in the New York Times. He has a very interesting comment in, in that, um, in excerpted from the book in the review where he says that particles, really interesting comment, particles, what we know is matter, particles are avatars of this zero point field. I thought it was a great description, right? Particles are avatars of the zero point field. That's a really interesting thing. David Bohm said the same thing, or I don't know, I can't say because I don't know if, um, um, Frank's complete riff on this, but this is what <clears throat> Bohm was talking about is the implicate order, or um, I should say the explicate order arising from the implicate order, which is basically their scientific ways of talking about from the Buddhist perspective, the, the trikaya, that out of the formlessness of the dharmakaya arises the rupakayas, sambhogakaya, nirmanakaya. Um, so anyway, avatar, great movie. Um, on Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, book sharing group. Next week, I'm interviewing um, Krishna Das. I love this guy. Do you guys know his music? The Kirtan. This guy's like the rock star of yoga, of Kirtan. Um, he's such a cool guy. Um, and so he and I, I think on 
we'll probably record it on Monday and then try to release it by next Friday. <clears throat> and what's going to be cool is, you know, there are two things in my interview series I have not touched on that have been really big in my life. One is music. I'm actually trained as a, as a um, classical pianist. And so actually I'm going to be playing a clip from um, uh, KD's, as he likes to be called, one of my favorite KD Kirkon chants. And then also a little Rachmaninoff clip from me, um, which I'm somewhat shy to do, but so it's gonna be about music. What is the role of music in, in, uh, on the path? How, how does sound play in? Where does mantra fit in? How does it work with the subtle body? So I'm super psyched to talk to him about that. Um, and for those of you who speak Korean, <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow and Saturday, I'm doing an e a, a two evening presentation for this community I hooked up with uh, a number of years ago in Seoul, Korea. Um, they want me to talk about Mahamudra and death. Um, so if you're really, if, if you are interested in that, put the link in the column. Um, if you speak Korean, I suppose you could come on if you speak English, but it's going to be, you know, English with a, it's not a simultaneous translation. You know, I'll go two or three sentences and then Ludrup, who's my pal over there, will be translating. Um, but this is something I've actually never put together you know, kind of officially joining Mahamudra with death. So that's coming on Friday for those of you who are interested in, in the Korean approach, so to speak. Um, but I thought what might, what might be good, I, 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 as you know, I've been doing a little bit more starting ending with, you know, opening our, raising our gaze to what's happening in the world so that what we do here doesn't become too spiritual so that you know what we do is actually of some relevance to this world because <laughs> that's so easy isn't it maybe maybe i'm just being confessional to take these spiritual teachings or whatever it is we're doing here and use them for spiritual bypassing um so simple so easy so what i would you know what i like to do now more and more especially with covid you know what is it five hundred and twenty thousand people now two thousand people a day still dying yikes is let's for the next minute, um, Tong Lin for the next minute on each in breath through every pore of your body, breathe in the pain and suffering of these 520,000 people and the millions of loved ones around them that have suffered, all the caregivers, all, you know, basically all the pain and suffering in the world. Breathe that in as a representative of the cosmos and then radiate out the quality of um, healing so for the next minute, I'm the medium of the breath. And again, if you're not familiar with Tong Lin, come join us on Monday night. We're talking about it. So one minute of Tong Lin practice for all the suffering in the world.
There we go. Thank you. One of the things we'll talk about this Monday is one breath Tonglen meditation session, which I do a lot, a lot. Um, I started doing this somewhat spontaneously a number of years ago when I was reading the morning paper or listening to the news and just hearing about all these just endless disasters, right? I mean, so much, so much pain. And instead of feeling, you know, I just felt all this contraction and just like, oh, it's just samsara. And so what I did, a little bit like in the spirit of the conditioning that we have around when somebody sneezes, right? We've been trained to say, bless you or gesundheit or something. And so I've been doing this for so long now that whenever I read something that's like, oh, these, you know, these 18 people that were killed in this car crash in California, these, these um, so-called illegal immigrants, um, I feel the contraction and I literally, I just do one, one breath, Tonglin, just, just to connect. Because otherwise it's so easy to just go numb. You know, it, it, there's so much pain and suffering that it's easy to just flip the page or whatever. And so um, Tonglin is, is a really, really powerful practice. Um, skipped over, I think, um, inappropriately. So what I wanted to talk just a little bit about today somewhat related is I just finished this program with Bob Thurman on the Pure Lands, which was, uh, is always with, with Professor Thurman. Uh, it was a hoot. He's a great guy. And um, we're doing a second one, by the way. I'll be advertising that a little bit later. At the end of this month, we're doing Tantra. We did Sutra Pure Land this weekend, end of March, we're doing Tantra Pure Land. And that's the stuff I think is just so bloody cool. So first weekend was Pure Land. Second weekend is pure mind and the connection between pure mind and pure land. But, but um, one of the things that I presented that I, I think is really, when I think about the pure land teachings, which by the way, largest form of Buddhism in the world, there's over a hundred million pure land practitioners. How, how much do we know about these pure land schools? They're colossal. And so the topic of merit is, is really big deal in, um, the Pure Land tradition, and it's to me, it's the highlight. Um, so I wanted to share a couple things around that. One, one, one is a somewhat humbling story. Um, when I finished my, between the, actually towards the end of my third year, my, my three-year retreat, um, Minju Rinpoche was visiting the abbey next door to where we were doing this retreat. And, and he was coming in to do a presentation, which is like, we get, you know, the retreatants get so geeked because nobody ever comes in, right? We're just totally alone, torturing, <laughs> torturing each other. And so, oh, Minji Rinpoche is going to come in and do a presentation. It was like, oh, this is awesome. And so I can't say what the other retreatants were expecting, but I was expecting, oh, you know, here we are, we're these big highfalutin Retreatants, he's going to give us some super esoteric inner secret ultra, you know, quint quintessence of the quintessence teachings, right? Only for the postdocs, for the post PhDs. Now, this is my attitude. It's like he's going to like give us something that no one else is ever going to hear, right? And so it was perfect because Minja Rimche came in and for two hours, two hours, he talked to us about merit. And the first time he said, uh, we're going to talk about merit, my heart just sunk. It was like, oh, God, you know, I know all about merit. I realized I didn't know anything about merit. And his, his teaching really smacked me in a good way. Um, 
it was exactly what we needed to hear. And, and honestly, ever since then, my appreciation for this thing called merit that we toss around, we meaning in the Buddhist community, you know, at the end of each session, we do this thing called the dedication of merit. And again, maybe it's just me confessing my ignorance, but you know, it always used to be, ah, let's just flap our lips, get this over with and get on with life, you know. But Mingji Rinpoche and then the deep dive into the Pure Land teachings, because in the Pure Land, I mean, what created Sukhavati, the Pure Land that most Pure Land schools are about is actually merit. It's where this kind of spiritual energy potency actually, you know, somewhat in the spirit, if we, if we don't take it too literally of E equals MC squared, right? Energy and mass are interchangeable that, um, Merit can actually create landscapes, literally. And so it's a colossal topic in the Pure Land traditions. And one of the reasons it's super important to understand the real nuances and the subtleties of merit is that the more we understand it, the more we'll accumulate it and dedicate it. And whether we know it or not, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of people that are on a so-called spiritual path, they're really on the path of accumulation. We are all on the path of accumulation. Out of the five paths of Buddhism, which I can't remember if I said this before to this group, you know, five stages on one extended path. They call it the five paths, but it's just five stages. The, the point we really want to get to in this life is called the path of seeing, the third path. That's non-retrogressive. That's where we want to get in this life. That's when you see the nature of reality in mind for the first time. And it's a kind of a before and after experience. It's, it's a semi big deal. Um, and also at the same time, no big deal. And so what actually brings about the path of seeing is actually the first two paths, the path of accumulation. That's what we are on, which principally is the accumulation of merit, good deeds. Um, second path parenthetically is path of union, path of juncture. And the idea is that if, when there's enough merit it's almost like cosmic currency. It, it, it can be like transferred. You can bring it to the counter. <laughs> you, can bring, you can bring it to the counter of the Buddhas and they will transform your merit into wisdom. And so um, it's a big deal. This thing called merit is a really big deal. Um, and you know, we flippantly toss it about like, yeah, whatever. But it's connected to karma, to good karma. And karma, again, also... Everybody knows about karma, right? No, no, only the Buddhas. The, you know, Buddha, uh, karma is one of the most complex, sophisticated topics in all of Buddhism. It is a really complex topic. Only a Buddha really understands karma. And so merit, you know, it's a big deal. Um, just to give you some sense of it, the accumulation of merit is only perfected at the eighth bhumi, which is a really lofty level of realization. So the more we understand about what merit is, the more we'll do meritorious deeds, the more we'll actually dedicate our merits. Um, and in the spirit of Tonglin, it just increases our event horizon, it just raises our gaze and allows us to think, feel, act bigger, 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 and better. Um, and so uh, there's so much to say here, but I just wanted to read a couple quotes um, supporting this stuff. Um, and I did quite a bit of research when I was putting this stuff together years ago, I did some pretty exhaustive research on this topic because again, you know, like so many doubters, I just, I didn't quite buy the whole merit thing. Um, 
And I also, like most people, tended to think of merit like little Girl Scout, Boy Scout badges, right? Right? You, you accumulate certain deeds, you get your little Boy Scout badge or your Girl Scout badge, and it has had this kind of reified, almost like, almost like pellets, right? Pellets of karma, pellets of good deeds. Oh my gosh, it's so much more sophisticated than that. Um, it has to do with, with um, um, spiritual inter interconnectedness, energetic positivity. It's really, really subtle stuff. But I wanted to read just a couple quotes to give you some sense of this. And then maybe we can talk about it at length um, in a different setting. But here's just a couple really cool quotes and then we'll open it up for the general Q&A. This is from Tuku Tindu Rinpoche. With merit, energy is passed at invisible levels, end quote. So something, some thing, some um, phenomena is quite literally being transmitted. And one of the reasons we, maybe I'm again speaking for myself, have so much trouble with this idea of, of merit, which can be accumulated, which can be dedicated, which can be transferred. You can transfer your merit into the account of another person. In fact, that's exactly what happens in the Pure Lands. The Buddha of, of that Pure Land, Amitabha, actually transfers his merit into your account, so to speak. And that power of that merit is such that it can actually supersede and negate your own negative karma, your, ne your own negative habits. So this is really kind of awesome stuff. One of the things that makes it difficult for many Westerners to really go around this is, is really um, our kind of default mode that the world is made of matter and that merit is this kind of feeble spiritual thing, you know, like, a, like a, an echo hurled up against a big mountain, you know, like what is it really going to do? Well, if you understand the world is not made of matter, the world is made of heart, mind, spirit, this ineffable matrix, energetic matrix, of which your mind and therefore your intentionality and your merit is inextricably connected to, then what you do with your mind and your merit actually has an effect on the cosmos. I mean, literally. Um, so a deep, deep uh, uh, kind of understanding of merit has to include a deep understanding of the nature of mind, where we realize that what we do with our intentions, our aspirations, actually has an impact, both internally and externally. We have a lot more power. The fundamental teaching really is we have so much more power than we think. And um, in the Bardo teachings, when someone dies, the single best thing we can do, those left behind, so to speak, is actually accumulate merit and dedicate it specifically for that person. So you can dedicate merit directly for a person, for a pet. Then, you know, someone who's actually died, someone who's actually been dead for a while, you can dedicate specifically to them gen generally. So there's all kinds of really wonderful, elegant nuances around this. Two other quotes, one from Luis Gomez, who he's a wonderful scholar who somewhat recently died, excuse me, at the University of Michigan. And he wrote quite a wonderful book. Oh, up until a couple of days ago, I had it here. Um, his translations of the two Pure Land Sutras from both, both Chinese and Sanskrit. Some of these scholars are amazing. So both from Chinese and Sanskrit, he translated these and then has this amazing set of commentaries. Um, and so this is part of what I extracted from his book. So this is Luis Gomez. The power of good deeds can be harnessed, directed, and transformed so that through good deeds, 
one becomes capable of affecting the life of others and even capable of working wonders. Good deeds can affect changes in reality. Merit can produce wondrous deeds and events. The fruits of merit, which would normally mean future blessings to, a, to its possessor, can be turned into something else, i.e. rededicated, or turned over to someone else, i.e. transferred. Merit shapes human destiny, but its possessor has a degree of control over the way in which it will shape the future, end quote. And actually, your future. So, you know, you want to have a good journey through this life and future lives? You know, it's like what Padmasambhava said, you know, the great tantric Buddha. If you want to know your past lives, look at your current situation. If you want to know your future lives, look at your, at your present actions. So what we have right now is, is a consequence of our, our meritorious, demeritorious actions from previous incarnations. What we will live in the future is really actually being established now. So this is a, an interesting kind of putting the fear of karma into you, right? <laughs> I always get a chuckle out of this. Like Buddhism can't put the fear of God into you because there's no creator principle, right? There's no God. There, there are gods, but there's no, you know, monotheistic, monolithic um, God as it is in the, in the theistic traditions. There are many gods, but there's not one all kind of pervading Brahma, at least in this tradition. Um, so we can't put the fear of God into you, but the, you know, the tradition actually puts the fear of karma into you. And that's what Lama Zopa Rinpoche actually wrote an entire book on this, he calls it wholesome fear, good fear, good fear. So this is from Alan Wallace. Again, there's so many quotes here. Um, maybe I'll ping some more of these later. Some of the stuff is out there. So this is from Alan. Merit can be understood as spiritual power that manifests in day-to-day -day experience. When merit or spiritual power is strong, there's little resistance to practicing. <clears throat> Dharma and practice itself is empowered. Tibetans explain that people who make rapid progress on the path in Dharma, <clears throat> gaining one insight after another, enter practice already having a lot of merit. By the same theory, it is possible to strive diligently and make little progress. Tibetans explain this problem as being due to too little merit. Merit is the fuel that empowers spiritual practice. Just as merit can be accumulated, it can also be dissipated by doing harm. In general, mental afflictions dissipate merit. The mental affliction that is like a black hole sucking up merit worse than all others is anger, end quote. And so then what the traditions say, I, it, this is kind of comical to me. <laughs> it's, like, it's like after you do some meritorious action, you know, hit the save button right away. Dedicate the merit right away before you get pissed off. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise you'll, you know, negate or obtund your merit. So there's so much more to say about this. And again, the, the super interesting part comes when you talk about merit as positive interdependence, the really inter interesting kind of non-reified forms of this teaching, but well beyond what we can talk about today. But that's what just came to mind. Um, is something to riff a little bit about for our entry comments for today. So a couple comments came in, questions. I'm gonna start with those. And then as always, <coughs> excuse me, um, we turn it over to you.
to talk about whatever you want. Okay, so there's three uh, written ones, a couple live ones from last week. Um, if Peter and Tony are here, you can raise your hands um, and I'll address, you can um, be kind of put front and center. So from Kathy, I have tried to be a vegan and a vegetarian for a long time, <clears throat> but not so successful. Is eating meat a cause for lower rebirth? How can I purify this life habit? I do POA for animals sometimes. Also what happens to these animals, also what happens, oh, this is another question. Also, what happens to these animals killed for food? I feel bad for this lifestyle, but I have trouble making vegan work out, <clears throat> sometimes out of health reasons, sometimes out of habit. Is it okay to euthanize pets at the end of life if vets recommend this? Okay, so lots of questions here. Uh, okay, so um, is eating meat a cause for <clears throat> lower rebirth? Well, depends on who you ask. Um, a lot of it has to do with intentionality. I mean, Joseph Campbell once said, you know, life lives on life. Life lives on life. The Dalai Lama has to have meat in his diet um, because in, in Tibet, you know, where the earth is so hard and it's hard to, you know, have agricultural success like they do in the subcontinents. His diet is such that he actually gets really sick. He, he actually has to have meat in his diet. Um, the Dalai, uh, the 17th Karmapa, kind of, you know, in, in his recent, not so recent, he's been talking about this for 10, 15 years now, really strongly recommends a vegan or vegetarian diet. To the very best of my ability, I try to maintain that as well. I definitely don't eat red meat. I'll eat fish now and again, that's it. Um, so is it a cause for rebirth in the lower realms? I mean, who's to say, right? I think a lot of it depends on one's intention. Um, this is a really tricky topic. In fact, there's an, I can't remember the title of this book, but there's an entire book written on this, um, the, the title of which escapes me. So it, it's, it's not such a simple matter, but a lot, of, a lot of it really depends on your intentionality. Are you, are you, when you eat meat, are you doing it with a sense of appreciation for the life source? You know, like when, when native indigenous cultures and Indians hunt, you know, a lot of what I've heard and read is that they have a really a tremendous honored relationship to the animals that they kill and then consume. So does that obtain the effects of their actions? I think it most certainly does. So a lot of it has to do with our intentionality. Um, it's best, again, this, this idea of should, should we be doing this? Should we be doing that? I, you know, that kind of gets my hackles up sometimes, you know, like, you know, I, challenge that a little bit when I say don't should on me. Um, but there are certain things that that are helpful to do and, and vegetarianism and does seem to be that. It seems to be a really good thing. Will it have cause for a rebirth in the lower realm? Who am I to say? Um, depends on your attitude, your approach. This is a, it's not such a simple cut dry answer. How can I purify this life habit? Well, understand the effects of causality. Um, if you're not dietarily, um, you know, like locked in, like the Dalai Lama is, then you can slowly wean yourself away from these um, food sources into a more vegan or vegetarian approach, for sure. I've done it over the years. I mean, I used to eat red meat and burgers right now. Now I eat, 
you know, Beyond Burger or whatever they call it, these kind of synthetic soy things. So you can definitely kind of wean yourself away from that. Um, I do poa for animals. That's a really wonderful thing to do. What happens to these animals killed for food? Uh, who knows? I mean, a Buddha has to, only a Buddha can answer a question like that. Uh, who knows? Um, yeah, the whole, uh, this, is, this is a painful topic. It's a good one. It's painful, right? You know, I mean, you watch some of these things about the, the farming industry and food farms and oh my God, it's just, they're horrific. Um, who's to say what happens to these animals? I'm in no position to answer that question. But what I can say is that dying in a terrified state of mind, which unfortunately, you know, um, who is the gal from, from uh, Fort Collins? Um, the autistic gal? Oh, someone, I'm sure somebody can ping in the chat column. She actually has a ranch just down the road from me. She devised a way, her name will come to me in a second. She devised a way to actually help the, the slaughter industry by trying to make you know, the paths to the slaughterhouse less fearful for these animals. Um, so dying in a terrified state of mind is not good. And, and so I'm not sure where else I can run with this. You know, these, what happens to these animals killed for food? I mean, it depends on their karma, right? Who can answer that? Only a Buddha. I feel bad for this lifestyle. So do I. But I have trouble making vegan work sometimes out of health reasons, sometimes out of habit. The habit thing you can work with, right? The health reasons like the Dalai Lama, you know, maybe you're, you're, that's, you don't really have much of a choice. These issues are, you know, once you start talking about karma and this type of thing, these, this is a really complex multifactorial systemic set of questions. And it's, it's I, I try very um, deeply not to have simple spun out, you know, quick soundbite types of answers. That's why there are literally there's entire books written on this topic. Is it okay to euthanize pets at the end of life? It depends again on who you ask. I have asked a number of teachers this question. Um, Kempel Sultram Gyanso, um, Trung Permache addressed this. And again, this is what they say. Is it, is it the only way? I, I can't say, but the teachers I've asked around this, they have said that, that um, pets don't learn from their suffering in this regard, like we do. And therefore the teachers I've consulted say that yes, it's okay to euthanize a pet to alleviate their suffering if your intention is pure and you're trying to do good. But other teachers will tell you otherwise. And so, yeah, you know, these are the things where you have to do your own homework, just do what feels right for you. And um, it's, it's charged, sometimes contentious topic. And so I, I tread into these waters with uh, judiciousness, um, with an understanding of the subtlety and the complexity of these topics. Best I can do with a good set of big questions. Um, I have put pets down, by the way, um, and when I did it, um, I did all the things I do for a human being. I write about this in my book, Preparing to Die. I have a whole section on what to do for when a pet dies. I was doing a type of POA for the pet as the pet was being injected by the vet. I was there literally when the cat was being put down, super esoteric thing, but I was just, you know, pinging the top of the head of the cat, the Brahmarandra and the pet as a type of POA, directing the consciousness of that dying cat to the top of his head. So my, I, in my book, Preparing to Die, I address some of this stuff. Tough stuff. Sky Laureate, what a great name. How are being 
how are being aware and surrender related? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think they are related. When we talk about, for instance, you know, um, devotion, bhakti in Hinduism, bhakti yoga, guru yoga in, in Tibetan Buddhism, um, devotion is a type of surrender. And in both these traditions, it's, it's huge because what it does is it, you know, if you think about the quality of surrender, it opens you, makes you vulnerable, makes you receptive. And so um, I think they're deeply connected. You know, the more defensive we are, the more contracted we are, the more that closing of the aperture of our heart and mind shuts down awareness, the more self-centric we get. And the more we surrender and open, the more we make ourselves available to awareness. So um, that's what Guru Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, it, they're in a certain way, they are surrender practices. You're surrendering, opening, making yourself available, vulnerable, receptive to, um, in this case, non-dual awareness. So they're definitely connected. Joni, have you known anyone who became enlightened in this lifetime? <laughs> I'm gonna, there's a bunch of questions here, so I'll answer them as I go along. I don't know. Uh, I know people that are sure as heck a lot more enlightened than me, but that's a pretty low bar, right? <laughs> you know, I'm sure everybody listening is more enlightened than me. <laughs> so that's a pretty low bar. That's what makes me so happy, right? My bars are so low. I don't, you know, I can't say. Um, I mean, like someone who made this kind of transition from sentient to sentient being to Buddha, no. But here's the thing around this journey, we don't always know, um, you know, we don't always know. I, I tell you what I am very suspicious of are the people who proclaim that kind of thing. Ay, vey. I mean, you know, like they say in Taoism, right? He who knows does not speak, he who speaks does not know. So it, it could it really be possible that there's someone I know who attained certain degrees of enlightenment. So when we talk about enlightenment, oh, I mean, what a colossal topic. There, there are stages, gradations of enlightenment. It's exceedingly, almost unimaginably rare, even though some people overtly or covertly proclaim they're one of these really rare people like King Indrabhuti, you know, like once in a millennia, that they get slapped in the head by a sandal or something like, you know, um, um, who was it? Talopa slapping Naropa, and all of a sudden, you know, you become enlightened. That's like unbelievably rare, even though people in the West would say, yeah, that's me. I'm one of those rare people. Like, I don't think so. So enlightenment is not, you know, it's usually comes about in grades. Like the first, like I talked about earlier, the path of seeing is the first glimpse of enlightenment, literally first boomy. And then you've got nine other stages above that in that cartography, nine levels of enlightenment. But the point here for me is that um, those who really do, do authentically become awakened, they're sure as heck not going to tout it. The experience is marked by tremendous humility, tremendous ordinariness. And so therefore, it's entirely possible that someone has been that way, um, and I might even know them. Um, but you know, the authentic ones, they're not going to talk about it. They're not going to tout it. They're going to keep that experience to themselves. Is it possible to become enlightened in one lifetime? Absolutely, positively. 
Having enlightened experiences, not that terribly difficult, honestly. Stabilizing those experiences into you know, realization, that's a different story. That is really rare, and that takes some work. By the way, this is also ties into the Pure Land teachings. You know, we, we, the reason the Pure Land teachings came about is because according to predictions in, the, in the, what's called the Great Heap Sutra and other sutras, we, and the, and the Hindus say the same thing. We are in the dark age, Kali Yuga. The uh, Japanese Pure Land talk about it as Mapo. Trungpa Rinpoche talked about it at the beginning of his Sadhana Mahamudra, you know, the darkest of the dark age. That's where we're at. So according to these, these great traditions, but Buddhism in particular, after the Buddha's death was the age of authentic Dharma, 500 to 1,000 years, where it was relatively, relatively easy to become awakened in one life. And if you look actually at the history, the hagiographies of the Siddhas, there are a lot more of them back there. Then there was a period of 500 to 1,000 years where you entered what's called counterfeit or semblance dharma, where it just became increasingly more difficult. We are now in, in the degenerate age where it's really difficult. That's why it's called the dark age. Um, and so unfortunately, it's harder and harder right now because of the, of the, of the insidious levels of distraction. I mean, there, there's, there's so many reasons why it's so hard to wake up because everybody is really, you know, they're, <clears throat> they're more interested in, in darkenment than enlightenment. And distraction is epidemic and runs rampant. So we are living in this age of counterfeit Dharma, which is what's predicted. And that's why it's harder and harder. I mean, how many siddhas do you see? I know Ken Wilber and others have done some, I don't know where they get this data. And I can't remember exactly what the numbers are, but you know, 0.00001% of the population today is awakened. I have no idea where they get those kinds of numbers. And I'm always a little bit suspicious about that kind of thing. So these are really tricky questions, Johnny. What is being in the Buddha field like? Oy, uh, the whole weekend was about it. Um, so I'm not gonna go through that again. Um, read the Pure Land Sutras, there are three of them. Shorter Sutra, Longer Sutra, and the Meditation Sutra. Um, I actually created a little DVD that I showed this, the, this past weekend about what it's like being in a Buddha field. These sutras describe what it's like. This is a really big topic, so I'm going to refer you to those sources. Do the Buddhas and other beings have illusory bodies? <laughs> These are great questions. Yes, they do. And, you know, when you talk about illusory bodies, again, just like with degrees of enlightenment, there are degrees of illusoriness. And so... This is also really interesting stuff. These are really big questions. Um, they do have illusory bodies. Um, and again, I'll, I'll refer you to some resources. Um, Alan Wallace in his book, Mind, or in fact, I might even have it. Oh yeah, I have it right here because I brought it up for the weekend. Here it is. Can you see it? I, I can't see my page. It's called Mind in the Balance. Meditation and Science, Buddhism and Christianity by B. Allen Wallace. In this book, he has four pages on what's called rainbow body. Wildly esoteric stuff. I highly recommend it if you're interested really in this. Um, oh, this stuff is so cool. This has to do with, with um, <laughs> I stumble a little bit here because the minute I mention one of these topics, you know, I open up a rabbit hole of, of material that could take us an hour to unpack. Um, yeah, to, to put it as succinctly as possible, they do have illusory bodies. They can appear, there's a difference here between what's called self-appearance and other appearance. 
So self-appearance means from their side, it's inconceivable what they are experiencing. In a certain real sense, they're not even there. But from what's called other appearance, from the way we look at them, they appear normal. So this is a little bit ties into the first part. You could look at them from the outside and, oh, that looks like Joe Schmo, right? But from the inside, they could be what's called um, the great body, the rainbow body of great transference, where they're actually existing as a body of light from their side. Stuff is wildly, um, I wouldn't say it's esoteric to us simply because we haven't experienced it, but it's actually commonplace. And so you're talking about material here, Joni, that, you know, when you start talking about the way the Buddhas are, what enlightenment is, the way they live, their types of bodies, literally, not metaphorically, inconceivable, really mind-stretching stuff. So they absolutely positively have illusory bodies, as in fact we do, we just don't recognize that, and illusory bodies exist across the spectrum. So unpacking that spectrum, unfortunately, is just a little bit beyond our purview here. What are the activities that occur there? <laughs> in the Buddha field, they play a lot of chess, they play a lot of Pokemon, you know, they <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like a retirement, ultimate retirement center. It's like this cartoon, this Gary Larson cartoon. <laughs> I wish that guy came back. I wish Gary Larson reincarnated into his job. I love this guy's humor. So he, I used to have his cartoons like everywhere. This guy's a genius. He had one cartoon in particular that, that will answer your question <laughs> where it, it shows this guy in a beard sitting on a cloud, right? Obviously in heaven. And the thought bubble above him is, man, I wish I would have brought a magazine, right? So he's in heaven and he's just bored out of his wits. What are the activities that occur there in a Buddha field? Again, literally, Joni, read, read the sutras. It, it's, um, yeah, you know, it's like describing, okay, what takes place in, in Malaysia. It's literally like that. Well, you have to go to Malaysia to find out. Um, everything very briefly that takes place here is the activities are all about the Dharma, um, studying the Dharma, learning the Dharma, if you're in a Buddha field. And again, it depends on the type of Buddha field. If you're in what's called the Dharmakaya Buddha field, where the Buddhas reside, uh, that's completely, utterly inconceivable. And then there's that intermediate bandwidth called the Sambhogakaya Buddha fields. Then there's the Nirmanakaya Buddha fields. And then there's all kinds of variations and gradations among those. So again, like the other question, what type of Buddha field are you talking about? But you know, outside of having you online and, and pinging more, that's probably the best I can do with a good set of questions. They're really big. And that's probably as far as I can run with them for now. So if Peter or Tony are there, um, most welcome. I think you guys were on the top of the list from last time. Otherwise we can just open it up. Yes, they're both here. So we'll bring in Peter first and Tony. Ask me an easy question. Just kidding. Okay, yeah, this is an easy question. Okay. Hi. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Happy to see you. And um, my question actually was, was somewhat lengthy. So okay. my, my habit sometimes, and I apologize for that, but um, I was thinking actually of a uh, uh, copying and pasting into the chat but then I thought maybe it'd be simpler if I just read that you know with the added inflections and things to make it make it possibly more clear okay is that all right yeah sure let's okay. give it a try so here we go um there are so many ways that make uh, that meditation is said to be practiced so many methods being offered 
But I find the challenge here to be the metaphor for meditation that one uses. As I see and experience it, I think of my meditation as an act of reeling in the mind, similar to the way a fisherman reels in a frantic struggling fish. Mm-hmm. The monkey mind, the undisciplined mind, is forever darting hither and thither under um, unbeknownst, unbeknownst or, or unfelt by its owner to be actually not at rest. Frequently, the word agitated is used. One could think of the energetic movement um, of, the, of this as, as the visitation into, of, into the past or the future as a kind of giddy motion, either in the envisaged past or the envisaged future, but never in the choice dimension of the now. Thus, the so-called movement of the mind could be seen as a type of displacement from the past to future, from future to the past, and so on. Rarely is the agitation, rarely in, the, in this agitation is there a conscious hankering for remaining in the now. And so as a conscious intelligent countermeasure, one figuratively takes hold of this wayward mind and returns it to the now, plunks it down on a stool and remains vigilant lest the monkey hoist up, hoists up its anchor and wander off all over again. Returning to the fishing metaphor, the uh, resting in the practice, or I'm sorry, the reeling is the practice or the exercise one performs to try and anchor the mind in the present. Mm -hmm. And because the monkey or the fish will initially not be easily tempered or restrained or assuaged, one is called upon to repeatedly reel in the mind. Precisely that repeated action is where perseverance and muscle, so to speak, comes into the picture. Without that, one's meditation, if one could even call it that, is something that one might as well, uh, it, it, something one might as well, is some, one might as well be doing something else. Is this an adequate portrayal of meditation practice? Specifically, is the repeated reeling in of the mind the fish, a good metaphor for the right kind of effort one, one must make to be striving at meditation. Yeah, yeah, nice, nicely said. Well, a couple of things here, Peter. One is uh, a big one, is that when we use the word meditation, meditation is again, another one of these kind of multivalent or polysemous terms. In other words, it has so many meanings. So meditation is like the word sport. What kind of sport are you talking about? The sport that you're talking about, the meditation that you're talking about, which is fantastically powerful, is is mindfulness. In other words, in particular, shamatha referential mindfulness. Fantastic form of meditation. So within that context, what you said is absolutely spot on. Um, You know, again, there are literally dozens of other types of practices where that particular definition actually no longer really applies. You transcend but include that definition. But in terms of, of what you mentioned, yeah, great. It, I, there's absolutely everything correct with what you said. You know, we're basically trying, um, it's what Trungpa Rinpoche referred to as manual labor, the path of manual labor, where the mind strays and you bring it back. It's like puppy training, right? The, mind, the puppy strays away, you pick it up, you bring it back. The puppy strays, you pick it up, you bring it back. 
And so what you're doing in so doing is you're reconfiguring, you're changing the narrative and also changing the default mode network, literally changing your brain from a default mode network that is wandering, which is the cause of all our suffering, the monkey mind, to a, you know, a default of, of ever-present awareness. And so this can be uh, looked at in several different ways as well. One is what you're talking about, which is the more um, common exoteric approach of effort. You know, it takes work. When mind strays, <clears throat> you recognize it. That recognizing, by the way, is awareness, brings it back to mindfulness. So mindfulness and awareness, Trenche in Tibetan, they work together. Mindfulness is staying on the present moment. Awareness recognizes when that mindfulness is broken and you stray, you pick the puppy back up, you bring it back. That's the path of effort. Another way to look at meditation, just as viable, in fact, on more advanced levels more so, is that the mindful state is actually the natural state. That's actually the natural state. So this is the path of relaxation, the path of effortlessness, more fruition approach, where if you simply open and relax your mind properly, you will find that mind coming back to the present moment. That's a slight sidebar. But outside of that, yeah, everything you said is spot on. It's beautiful. Um, and the more you do it, the more it becomes your default mode, the easier it gets. Um, you go through the nine stages of shamatha, which are the classic progressions along this path. <clears throat> but eventually, you know, you will find yourself, hopefully you'll find yourself transcending this altogether because as powerful as this is, it's, it's fundamentally just a very sophisticated tranquilizer, pacifier. And that's really great. When the world's on fire, it's cool to chill out. But this practice in and of itself will not liberate. Um, it pacifies. To liberate, then you have to mature into Vipassana. And this is exactly the trajectory that we're doing in a Monday night group. That's why we're doing it. So people can understand the nuances, the subtleties, the differences, the nomenclature. And people therefore get a more granular, nuanced approach of meditation and therefore their own minds. But in relationship to what you said, Peter, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Um, but you know, there's more. For what you said, spot on. But you know, at a certain point, you will find yourself hopefully going um, even beyond that. Okay? Can't hear you. Hold on. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to ask. Uh, that you mentioned vipassana. I'm just wondering, in terms of the sequence. Should one be uh, sufficiently attained in, in uh, shamatha before one attempts uh, vipassana, or can they be both done maybe simultaneously? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and again, these absolutely. Um, you don't have to like perfect shamatha to start practicing vipassana. And in fact, these are all aspects of the mind that are, that are either overtly or covertly at work anyway. So whether you know it or not, even when you're working with mindfulness, it's not like there's, you know, you put your mind in a silo and somehow the qualities of a pashna can't somehow in, inform mindfulness. No, it's not that clean. It's just simply when you transition from formal mindfulness to then mindfulness awareness or chamata vipassana, you're cultivating more the vipassana facet aspect. So absolutely positively, you know, you can start to bootstrap both because these are just qualities of the mind inherent within these two cultivated meditative trajectories that, that we actually do lift each other up. Um, so absolutely positively, you know, you can work focusing principally on this, this um, foundational practice. And then um, all the while knowing that even when you're doing that, you're already starting to work the Vipassana muscle, whether you know it or not. 
it just comes to the fore when you actually do specific Vipassana related practices. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Welcome. Uh, Take care, amigo. Okay, Tony, are you there, bud? Yep. Rigatoni. Rigatoni? I am here. Rigatoni. <laughs> Rigatoni. <laughs> it, believe me, it beats Tony Tony, Tony Macaroni. <laughs> All over the place. Thank you. <laughs> so um, once again, um, because you invite us all to um, get out of our comfort zone, um, I'll, I'll again take advantage of, of that on, on two counts, if, if I might. Um, two weeks ago, uh, two hangouts ago, um, there was discussion around um, shamanism, um, mediumship, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it seemed though quite, quite a few people were interested or had yeah. questions or were even questioning themselves perhaps about what might be occurring to them internally. That being said, I will um, come out of the closet a bit. Uh, I, I am a shaman. Cool. Um, cool. <laughs> I am also a spiritual healer. Nice. Nice. <clears throat> Nothing I can do about that. I was born that way. Mm -hmm. I'm fourth generation shaman, spiritual healer in the cool. United States. My, my ancestry goes back to, to the Azores. Girl. My grandma, great grandma, uh, were Kudunderas. Um, uh, I'm a Kudundero. Uh, that's that's kind of like the folk healer. Nice. Okay. Um, my kid sister is a healer, straight healer. Um, she's 66. She's 10 years younger than myself. She's 66. She's born blind. Mm. <laughs> um, last rites of the Catholic Church three or four times after after she was born. Um, okay. My niece, who is fifth generation, is a physical therapist and shaman and um, uh, medium. She's gotten people out of wheelchairs who aren't supposed to get out of because of that whole combination. Cool. Um, I'm clairvoyant, clairaudient, clairsentient, all that kind of stuff. Um, I have only had one um, human spiritual teacher in my 76 years. All of my other teachers have been um, oh man, I forget the initials that you use. Oh, NIH? Oh, yeah. No, NHI. NHI. Yeah, National Institutes of Health or Non Human. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, yeah, so all that kind of thing. So I'm just putting it out there for folks. Um, I've helped a lot of folks um, find out for themselves 
whether or not they might be healers or psychics or, or, or mediums. Many of, of my friends are, are mediums. I know that there are a lot of mediums out there who bullshit. Um, I don't know, uh, none of my friends are, and I have to say there's a dozen. Um, so, for me, I, I, I'm offering so I can create merit for myself. <laughs> anyone who wants to get it, and anyone who has questions about that kind of thing, because I have helped people. I mean, you got to understand, I've been doing this since I was a kid. Cool. Um, aunts and uncles would, would come to the house when I'm four or five year, years old. Oh, Anthony, I have, I, I have a headache. Kiss my head. I kiss their head, and, and the headache would gradually go away. It's, it's always been that way, you know? So um, I, I would offer that to help anyone, and I'm not talking about money or any of that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, if anybody need, need, needs help, um, you know, what you can do, Tony, that's beautiful. Thank you. What you can do is in the, in the chat column, just put in some connection uh, where they can reach you for those who are interested. And then, yeah. Um, yeah. Set yeah. that up there. And then for, for people that have a connection to that, they can reach out to you. Oh, I, I would, I would, I would love to help in, in, in any way that I can. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. That'd be great. And there is something uh, from last week, a second thing from Claire, Claire Johnson. Oh, Claire. Yeah. Right. Yeah, um, she ended up with talking, or uh, pretty much at the end, talking about black sleep. Yeah, I think I remember. Okay. I have never heard anyone use that term in right. my life. Right. I have had black, sleeps, black sleep experiences since I was a teenager. Okay. Extraordinary ones. And I've never heard that. And, and, and you just bring so much. Yeah, you should reach out to her. Yeah, Pinger. You can reach her. She has a really active website and an active community. You can just reach out to her if you're interested in exploring her usage of that term and its connection to your experience. So don't be shy to reach out to her. Because like, that's what I've called it ever since I was a kid, the yeah. Black Sea. Yeah. Um, I, I, thank you again for everything. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Rigatoni. Always nice to see you, my friend. I, I, I'm loving it. Oh, and, and I'm going to for, forewarn you. I have like um, a question for you for um, uh, uh, Dreams of Light. Okay. Um, next, uh, next week. Yeah. I haven't really for, uh, formulated it. Cool. But <laughs> ping, ping, it up on, ping it up on Tuesday night and we'll talk about it then. Okay, Amigo? Thank you. Take care. All the Tell best. All the best. Thanks, Andy. Okay, so we're going to go to a couple. Thanks, my friend. We're going to go a couple of the chat questions and then there's a couple of people in mind for live ones. You're there next. But let me get to a couple of these from Jane. What is spiritual bypassing? Keep on hearing the phrase, but no comprende. Yeah, this is a term coined by my dear de deceased friend, John Wellwood, a really brilliant psychiatrist, psychologist in his book, Psychology of Awakening, Toward a Psychology of Awakening. Really wonderful book. He was a very sensitive thinker. Best books on relationship, by the way, I've ever read. Journey of the Heart, um, Perfect Love and Perfect Relationship as a sidebar. He coined that term riffing on the original term coined by Trungpa Rinpoche called spiritual materialism. So... 
Um, there's an entire book on this now. I recommend it. I read it just this past year by uh, Robert Augustus Masters, literally by that title, Spiritual Bypassing. Fundamentally, it's, it's when you use um, spiritual practices, ideologies, beliefs, and the like um, as a way to bypass, circumvent the messiness of the human condition. And it, I tell you, spiritual bypassing is epidemic. It's a little bit what I, you know, that's why I keep trying to bring it to the fore. That it's extremely easy. Ego can very easily come in, co-opt, subvert anything. Even the spiritual um, practices that are designed to transcend the ego can be converted to, distorted to support the ego. Um, so I'll refer you to the sources. Uh, Robert's book is actually quite okay. Um, an entire book by this topic, it's quite okay. So I recommend you check that out. But that's the kind of the lineage of where that term comes from. It's an epidemic, really. It's everywhere. Hangout guy. Okay, hangout guy. Link the Korean presentation tomorrow night. Uh, Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, you are going to have to leave me in the chat column a way to connect to you because unless you, you know, I, I, I don't advertise these international events, mostly because people don't speak these foreign languages. And so I don't even have a link to this. I would have to connect you and I'm happy to do it. Um, if you leave me your, ad, your, your contact address in the chat column, I can connect you directly to Ludrup Nawang, who is setting this whole thing up, and then he can connect you to this event. Um, I actually don't have a link on it. That's why I don't even put it on my site. But thanks for your interest. Merit, spiritual Bitcoin. I like that. Yeah, spiritual Bitcoin. Why not? <laughs> the alternative currency. Hamdana, can the being, can the being transferring their merit tell you how much you may already <laughs> I chuckle at these things because they actually are kind of humorous. Can the being transferring their merit tell how much you may already have? That's actually a very interesting question. Yes. Um, again, it, it depends on the level of the being who is actually doing the transferring of the merit. They talk about, um, this is a very interesting term or, or kind of uh, phraseology here. They, they talk about really awake beings being able to actually smell the merit of someone. They have this, again, don't think too literally, but you get the, you get the sense, so to speak, you get the drift. That advanced beings can, can read you that way. They, they know. So it depends on the level of the person who's transferring the merit. Uh, for the awakened one, yes, they can tell you how much merit you already have. Um, finding one of those beings, not so simple. Um, and first of all, they would never tell you, you know, they would say, oh, you know, your, your stock market just went up, you know, they're not going to tell you that. But yeah, great beings can actually see that. They can read your karmic DNA for sure. I realize that this is a kind of asking along the lines of having a bank account of merit. So this may be an irrelevant question. It's not an irrelevant question. It's just a really difficult one to answer. Um, you can also tell how much merit you have and this gets really tricky by the life circumstances. Um, so I, I'm not gonna go into that hornet's nest. That's a real challenging one, but basically that's what comes to mind, Donna. Wendy, is merit adversely affected when we do something to gain merit for yourself rather than acting selflessly? No, it's not. It's just that what happens here, Wendy, is the merit is exhausted more rapidly. Let me see if I can find a supporting quote on this real quick since I had this note. Um, 
there's a really good one if I can find it uh, from Kempo Kartar exactly on this topic. And if not, I'll pull it up for next week. Let me see if I can find it. Summarizing him, if I can't find it, is that when you dedicate your merit, oh, I, I think I know where it is. Ah, here it is. Ha ha, I found it. So this is from Kempo Kartar Rinpoche talking about this. If you dedicate merit to one person around one situation, you or one other one, right? Then that merit will ripen only once and the merit will be exhausted. But if you dedicate the merit to all sentient beings, the merit becomes inexhaustible. Merit can also create affluence and wealth for you, the result of undedicated... Uh, uh, that's my interjection, so I don't need to throw that in there. Merit can also create affluence and wealth for you, but this karmic ripening happens just once and is exhausted. With the mind of enlightenment, i.e. bodhicitta, the merit becomes inexhaustible. Okay? So you can definitely dedicate it for yourself and for others, but there's the limitations in doing that. When we send blessings to someone, are we giving our merit to them? I'll leave that for you to decide. There, I, there is definitely a deep connection between transfer of blessings and merit. This also ties in, we talked about it in the weekend, to this really super interesting esoteric topic of the transfer of merit, creating the type of tukus that we know. So just very briefly here, just to show you how um, sophisticated and out there this stuff is. Is that, you know, of the four types of, there are a number of different types of reincarnates, tukus, masters that come back. Most of what we know as if you're in the, in the Tibetan world, Wendy, is the Tibetan Rinpoche's, most of them are what are called blessed Nirmanakayas. And Trungpa Rinpoche and others talk about it. We talked about this over the weekend, where what they can do is what happens, it's so out there, is that in the, in the bardo, they have a connection to someone in the bardo, they can actually kind of inject, transfer their merit into that santana, into that mind stream. That mind stream then is kind of amped up, juiced up with this merit. Um, and that, that's what creates what's called a blessed nirmanakaya. So exactly what you're saying applies here. That becomes a blessed tuku. Most of the tukus that we know on the planet today, two, 3,000 of them, they're in this category. So uh, I'm gonna let that go. Um, uh, because that does answer your question and the subtleties behind it, behind it are a little bit beyond our scope. So, Nicole, when we send blessings to someone, are we giving our merit to them? Well, again, Nicole, this is exactly what I said with the, the reference to Kempo Kartar, right? So Kempo Kartar's statement pretty much addresses that. And if it doesn't come on and I can, if there's something else to it, I'm happy to elaborate on it. Hi, Tim. Uh, do you think there is such a thing as grace? Absolutely, positively. Not based on merit or karma, but just on spontaneous loving compassion. Oh, for sure. Absolutely, positively. And so whether you append the word grace or merit or blessing to it, hey, you know, does it really matter? Um, but I definitely think there is such a thing as grace. Um, I also do think it's connected to merit and karma, but that's just me. Cassandra, what is the Tibetan view of euthanasia? Depends on who you talk to. Um, some people say, you know, that kind of, eh, this is my kind of casting of judgment. Some of the hardliners say um, no at all cost. Um, then the more sophisticated ones in my humble estimation um, actually 
things like pat, they make a difference between passive and active euthanasia. Active euthanasia is a no-no. Every teacher I've ever talked to um, says that active euthanasia is a, is a no-no. But you know, I've had really interesting conversations. I had a really long conversation with Ken Wilber on this, um, in a six-hour six interview. <laughs> he interviewed me, it was great for my book. Over six hours, over two sessions, we, we actually talked about this. Um, but Kemp, uh, His Holiness Dinko Kensei Rinpoche and others say they make the distinction between passive and active euthanasia. Active euthanasia is a Kevorkian thing. Every teacher I've talked to said that's not such a great thing. Um, um, and I have to say around all these teachings, one of the most, I thought, reasonable advices I got was from an Acharya who once said, you know, Andrew, Yes, it, it's important to advi ask advice from your teachers to read the text, but fundamentally it's your choice. It's your decision. Um, it helps to know the karmic implications to understand what karma is. So in relation to passive and active euthanasia, passive euthanasia is okay, no karmic repercussions. And by this, what do you do? You stop eating, you stop drinking. That's passive euthanasia. There's no negative karma to that based on what I've heard. Active euthanasia, you know, um, the Kevorkian type thing, not such a great thing. But that's, again, that's just certain people expressing that. I, these are things like, yeah, who am I to say? I'm just telling you what I've heard here. This stuff is really tricky. Elaine, in, <coughs> excuse me, in contemplating impermanence and practicing opening, I am pinging more into suffering in contemplating impermanence and practicing opening. I'm pinging more into suffering. So that's a statement. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I think yeah. I might have copied that wrong from the chat. Oh, okay. I'll let you correct it. Then I'll go to Linda, okay? Because I don't see a question there. So if you can fix that, then I'll come back to it. So from yeah. Linda, uh, Andrew, I really love what you said about at the beginning about applying Tong Lin to watching the news. You're right on. There's so much suffering that comes to our attention. Thanks for the means of responding to it instantly. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for sharing that. So uh, as Andy's cleaning that up, if there's a live question. Yeah, we'll bring in Myra. Myra! Just a quick one and just yeah. a little bit. Um, and it's not a question. I just was wondering if you have the opportunity to see the gallery version of the first morning of last weekend's workshop um, to watch Mr. Terman watching you teaching was the highlight <laughs> are you serious face, oh my gosh his face was like this <gasps> and he kept saying and i was oh, so kidding. full of pride that i oh, know you <laughs> you're so sweet no i haven't seen it at all oh you're so sweet oh, you have i have no idea see it. I, oh. he gave me the impression that he was going to fly out and <laughs> all of a sudden you got him there because he even forgot about it and his madness is so precious <laughs> and his intelligence is so beautiful. And I, my ego kept getting bigger, like bigger, like I know that guy, he's oh, teaching so you sweet. and you like it. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing so, that. I had no idea. I didn't even know he was there because he usually just disappears and, you know, he's not there. Yes. So the fact that he was there. And it's I, the I, first I, time. You're so sweet to say that because I thought he was. Yes, just it's polite. just, you have to see it because it was very sweet and congratulations. I think that if that um, we can, we can uh, for the people for the next time, if they can watch it, because the way that he discussed not only the pure lens, but uh, suchness and interdependence, yeah, 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 it yeah. was a beautiful transmission yeah. of 
of it was just beautiful. So he, thank when, you. I just yeah, he's he's amazing. He's like the the classic mad scientist genius. I, I love the guy to death, and, and he's utterly inevitable. He's so such a delight to work with, and he is so incredibly educated and so well trained. And to me, I, I delight when he when he takes off his hat. I mean, he's he's old enough where he's so in his skin. He's yes, just yes. so comfortable who he is. And when he runs into his little political commentaries or whatever, like, you know, where angels fear to tread, I'd never go there. But he goes there with such endearment and such authority that I, I just get bewitched by the characters. I, I love working with him. And I, I had no idea he was uh, that way with my presentation. So that Oh, you have to you, you do have to see it. But uh, for some of us that keep saying oh, what is not there and the self that is not there, that the self is not there. I mean, sometimes so difficult to grasp. Yeah, yeah. His, his uh, explanation of the emptiness really of yeah. the mind and the interdependence and relationship, he was such a transmission that those of us that yeah. did not, I just recommended and I had to say something. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. No, Bob, Bob is really, as you know, I mean, especially when he's on, he's really brilliant. I mean, you really see his extensive training and all the experience he's had with the Dalai Lama and all these other people. He's, he's a really special guy. Um, and he's so bloody humble and just, I mean, I love him. So thank you for sharing that, Myra. Had no oh, idea. yeah. So yeah. thank you. Thank you, everybody. Take care. <laughs> That's very sweet of you. Thank you. Yeah. I got the question cleaned up. Okay. Check it out. Oh, so here <laughs> So in contemplating impermanence and practicing opening, I'm pinging more and more into the suffering around me than the joy. It can be a downer. Yeah, it can be, a, yeah, this is why, yeah. This is why Tonglin is so important, honestly, Elaine. Um, because, you know, it, it, when you're working with these types of things, this is where uh, the juxtaposition of what's called in techno speak um, absolute and relative bodhicitta come into play. Um, relative bodhicitta is, is compassion, everything we know, the loving heart, the, you know, the more relativistic approach. But absolute bodhicitta is, is the groundless ground of all that. And by that, what I mean is that is embodied in the practice of Tonglin. If, if we don't set the stage with, with some absolute bodhicitta quality, some quality of emptiness, then what happens is when we work with this stuff, we, we, we take this, the suffering upon ourselves. And that's a mistake. We, what's actually, who's actually taking on that suffering is not you, but the cosmos itself. And so therefore, to really work with these practices properly, in my opinion, not so that they don't become a downer, they become an upper. Then the teachings on emptiness and absolute bodhicitta are key. That's why all the, bodhi, all the slogans, all the training, the Mahayana training starts with absolute bodhicitta because then, you know, this becomes a downer when you take it on yourself and then it loads you down. So the, the key with the practice here is by working with these more absolute level teachings at first, they open you up so that what happens is something like the following, you actually end up feeling things more, but they hurt you less. Let me say that again. You feel things more, but they hurt you less because you're not giving them a place to land. So you feel this tremendous, like the Dalai Lama, he just weeps openly, his heart is constantly broken, but it never gets him down because he doesn't take it personally because there's no person there. There's, it's that, he doesn't make that mistake. So it doesn't have to be a downer. Um, this is where you know the, these more 
spiritual teachings can really, really help you prevent burnout, prevent any kind of depression, because you know you just have a much wider gaze and a much wider lens. So I would really encourage understanding, read Pema Children's teachings on Tonglin, you know, join our little group on Monday night. This is exactly the kind of thing that we're working with in that practice, okay? Oh, Steph, that's very sweet. Andrew, your bar isn't set low. It's, it's that way because you are truly tall. That's very sweet. What are you guys trying to, you're trying to get good merit today? I think that's what's happening here. So Myra said that so she could accumulate merit. Good for you, Myra. Well done. Steph is saying this so she could accumulate merit. You guys are catching on smart. You guys are smart cookies, right? <laughs> See, it's a win-win situation. You make me feel better because it's all about me. And you guys accumulate merit. And that's really good. <laughs> Which really, thank you. I do appreciate it. Okay, a couple more. And then um, I have to go spend my merit. Let me say something about this, actually. This is a bit important it's a little personal but this is the way I, I i started doing this in my retreats 20 years ago where and, and maybe everybody listening here could maybe explore this a little bit <clears throat> i started um realizing in my retreat it just happened one night how fortunate i am i am a really lucky mofo I mean, I, I have such a lucky, blessed life. I'm not saying it's easy, but I've been exposed to so much teaching, to so many masters. I feel so fortunate. And I started doing this quirky thing <clears throat> that I, I really, I rarely talk about it, where I started in a certain way paying homage to my own mind stream. In other words, all the countless previous incarnations that that I am now the beneficiary of, right? And I had this really kind of strange little image that there was like, you know, this relay race, but it's not really a race, where, you know, these previous incarnations obviously did something okay. And then they handed the baton onto the next incarnation and they handed the baton. And, and I feel like now I'm, I'm at the end of this relay race. I'm just the latest network in it. And, and I'm just so fortunate. I'm so blessed. I feel so blessed in this life. And so what came across to me, and this is the take home, and I mean this really seriously, is I started to realize, you know, I am not going to go on a karmic spending spree. I'm not going to waste what has been, so to speak, given to me. I'm going to do what my previous incarnations have done for me. I'm now going to reinvest. I'm going to now create merit for my future mindstream, right? And so to whatever extent that works for you, this was a pretty colossal thing for me in my retreat where I started almost like with bowing, I had this image of all these previous incarnations doing all the spiritual practice. And then I, in a real way, I'm a beneficiary of, of, so to speak, their work, right? And so what am I gonna do? Just waste it, spend it? No, 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 I'm going to reinvest. I'm going to do exactly what they did to create this schmuck called me. <laughs> I'm now going to be in that spirit and I'm now going to act in the same way for future lives. And so I share that. I, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever said this in public before, but I have to tell you, it was, it was a semi big deal for me. It really shifted things for me. You know, it's like, I'm not going to waste this. I'm going to work really hard for the benefit of all beings. And also for this silly mind stream called Santana, this silly thing that now has this little point projectory that it's called, that's called Andrew, this pathetic thing. So I just wanted to share that. 
Oh, geez, 10 raised hands, yikes, okay. Uh, let me get these last two and then we probably have to start closing this down because I, I have to do a hard stop at, at, in 10 minutes. But again, all the raised hands, I'll get to them as quickly as, as many as I can. We'll put you at the top of the list for next week like we did before. So a couple of quick, quick ones here and then we'll shut the door on this for today. Is accumulating merit the same as accumulating karma? Yes, very similar, very similar. But it's a little bit different because it's karma that's inclined, perfumed with intentionality. That's the difference. So it's not just accumulating random karma. It's actually karma that's set in the trajectory of meritorious outcomes, right? So it's definitely connected to karma, but it's perfumed, set off in a different way. What is the relationship between the paramis and merit? Good question. The paramitas and the merit. Yes. So the six paramitas, the six transcendent actions, generosity, generosity, um, discipline, patience, exertion, meditation, and prajna, wisdom. Depending on who you talk to, there's a little bit of a, a variation in the scholarship here. Um, one through four, relative bodhicitta, accumulation of merit. Five, meditation is a bridge between relative and absolute. Six, prajna wisdom is the fruition of the first five. Got that? <laughs> so in terms of the six paramitas, and again, there are different variations of this. The first four, generosity, discipline, patience, exertion. Massive merit collectors, also along with what are called the four Brahma-Viharas, right? The four uh, divine abodes, um, loving kindness, uh, Maitri, Metta, Compassion, Karuna, Sympathetic Joy, and Equanimity. These are the, the, the two massive Mahayana ways of actually accumulating merit. But fundamentally, just doing good deeds accumulates merit. These are just specific ways of doing that, okay? So we'll get some of the raised hands, and then, um, you know, I do have to do the hard stop in five minutes. We'll pick up next week with those that I didn't get to, and you'll be top of the list. So we can take a couple more, okay? Okay, so Jamie, Bridget, and Sonia, if we can get to them. And it, it does help. It does help if you can make your, your offerings, your questions as succinct as possible. I don't want to like, ah, you know, slam everything down and make it just bullet point because the spontaneity, the luxury is part of what's fun here. But I think you understand just to allow space for other people to ask or say something. Okay, please. Hello, Andrew. Uh, thank you for your, your books and thank you for your audio recordings. Um, my, my question is uh, okay. around contractures. Um, I'm a bodywork practitioner and uh, 30 years ago I learned a system from Marion Rosen um, that where you put your hands on somebody's uh, contraction that's, that they're unable to release and she explained it in a way that it would, this was like an emotional type holding and the release was more emotional. And um, through the years, it's come to understand now more that it's more of a contraction of being. Yeah. And, um, and the, express, the release or the understanding of the holding isn't necessarily emotionally based. Um, and I understood it early on in terms of Tai Chi push hands practice. Yeah of touching, uh, connecting with resistance and yielding and emptying and opening with that. I came into uh, Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism about four years ago 
and have been searching for a, a parallel within this tradition. And I've um, explored a lot of the somatic meditations, but I've never uh, come across anything around touch and connection and uh, meeting somebody's contraction and you as a practitioner, your job is to uh, basically be present, open, empty, and be available to um, witness whatever experience somebody has mm -hmm. for themselves to yeah. experience. Uh, can you resource me in yeah. any way to teachings within Tibetan Buddhism? Um, I found your, uh, in, or, or, Yes, thank you. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your work. Um, yeah, really, I'm fantastic. So a couple things come to mind. Um, first, let me ask you, are, are you familiar with Reggie's work? Have you, have you? Yes, into I've, his I've read all his books and yeah. done all his meditations. And I, I, I think they're great. There's a lot of, a lot of work in the field of somatics. Yeah, exactly. Around this, yes. Good for you. Because Reggie, as you know, um, talks about this with, I think, real rigor and elegance. You know, the, the contraction, the tension thing and all that. I think it's really beautiful. You know, in terms of other resources about touch, let, let me say something quite um, humorous and, and revelatory about my experience of Tibetans altogether. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and also uh, shared by other people. Uh, I won't name names, but there's some really advanced practitioners who have shared these very humorous types of stories. The Tibetans, as, as you may or may not know, and I've, I love them to, to death. I spend so much time in Tibetan communities. I work in refugee communities. I've spent years with, I love them. But as you may or may not know, they're not exactly touchy-feely, right? <laughs> they're just not. And so here's the funny part, and this is hysterical. Uh, my dear friend, Anyway, I won't say her name, but she's just hysterical. And she's, she's living in the, in the Tibetan communities and worked with them for, I mean, decades. And she, she, I was doing this big empowerment thing, this Kala Chakra empowerment thing, like 10 years ago in Kathmandu with um, Tenga Rinpoche. And there must've been 10,000 people packed into the shrine hall. And what was really kind of out there, and this, I shared this with her, and she explained to me in a very humorous way, you know, before the gates were open, I mean, it's like almost like a mob scene out there. You know, they're all like squeezing and pressing and they're all like ready to burst in. And when I shared the story with her, she just kind of burst out laughing. She goes, I have a theory about this. And she said that the Tibetans are so phobic about touch that one of the only ways they can get away with touching each other is in these kind of mob scenes around the teachers, right? <laughs> Which I thought was actually hysterical and there may be some truth to that, who knows? But with that said, they, they really are not a touchy-feely or emotive community. They're just not. And whether that's a strength or weakness, I'm, I'm not here to judge that. But I cannot actually think of any type of touching therapy from a Tibetan approach. That isn't to say that it's not there. I'm just not aware of it. Um, they're just not that kind of peep. You know, they, they don't work that way. So as you know, you, you know much more about this than I do, that the Western energetics, Reich, you know, Feldenkrais, all this other stuff that you are so much more facile with than I am, 
I honestly think that's the great contribution from the West. So what I would do is be a trailbreaker. I would be a groundbreaker like you seem to be. Use the armamentarium of the inner yogas and Reggie's work and the subtle body and all that. And then conjoin it with your understanding of touch um, and somatic work. Because I, I personally, I have tremendous respect for this. And I do think it's one area, and again, I can't speak with total authority here, where perhaps the Tibetan tradition is, I mean, deficient isn't the right word, but perhaps it's not as replete as the more touchy-feely, emotive Western um, skillful means. And so I, I honestly can't think of anything. Okay. Um, and so what I would do if I were you is join what you already know using these two world, worlds and start to teach about it, start to write about it. Um, you know, bring them together in your own experience because I think they have tremendous kind of cross-pollination capacities. And, you know, you can bring these schools together and become the resource yourself. If something comes to mind, I'll let you know. Okay. But I literally, I mean, I'm doing a mental Rolodex here and I can't think of anything. Um, but sometimes when it's over, I'll go, oh, there was one. And if that's the case, I'll let you know about it later. Okay. Okay. Hey, thank something you like so very much. Yeah. I mean, very cool. I, I really, what you're doing, all I can say is, is go for it. You know, I, I am more and more deeply um, respectful of the whole somatic approach. And, and I do think what Reggie's done here is really pretty skillful, um, but it's just, there's so much more to be untapped and massage, you know, I mean, all the things that you know about this kind of deep inner work breaking through with, with touch and the kind of juxtaposition of the methods that you're familiar with, with this inner yogic approach, I think could really be extremely careful, um, um, uh, helpful. And so if something else comes to mind about people that may be doing this, I'll let you know, but that's kind of where my mind runs with it for now. Okay, thank okay. you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Appreciate it. You bet. And so you guys, sorry, I need to run. Hard stop. Please, 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 for the nine people that I didn't get to, we will ping you. Um, we'll put you at the very top of the list for next week. And we'll go through those um, at the very outset. I love this, the Q&A. I really uh, enjoy it. And it's always a little hard to just you know close the door, but at some point we have to. So come back next Thursday. We'll do this again. Those of you I didn't get to, you'll be at the very top of the list. Okay, everybody. So to whatever extent dedication of merit means something to you, I love the simple gesture. Just bring everything we've done that's of any value and then give it away. It's a wonderful kind of Zen-like thing. The only way you can really keep your merit is if you give it away. Isn't that fantastic? So whatever benefit we have for all sentient beings who are suffering, in this world and beyond. Let's give it away to all those who need it. Until then, see you all. Take care of yourselves. Thank you so much. Ciao.